Welcome to Capital Considerations with Tony Roth. I'm Megan Shu, Head of Investment Strategy in for Tony, who is out of the office this week. We want to share highlights from a webinar we hosted along with our chief economist, Luke Tilley, on September 23rd. Inflation, the Fed, midterms, and portfolios. What's ahead for markets? We think you'll find the discussion helpful in light of the numerous factors affecting the market right now. We cover persistent inflation, Federal Reserve rate hikes, the weak economic data, and of course, the looming possibility of a recession. And when Tony returns, Capital Considerations will also return with some new and interesting topics. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining our conversation today. We felt that this was a good time to have a conversation around the markets and what's happening in the economy and how we're positioning our portfolios. We haven't spoken to the group in several months, and a lot's happened uh, in terms of the inflation trajectory, as well as geopolitical stresses, and of course, how the markets are reacting. And lastly, we have an election coming up in November, and we wanted to be able to address how we're seeing that potentially impacting markets as well. So we are going to start with a conversation around inflation, since inflation, of course, has been the dominant theme that continues to buffet markets. And let me introduce my two colleagues, who you probably all know, uh, Luke Tilley, our chief economist, and Megan Shure, head of investment strategy. So the takeaways for the conversation today are going to be that, importantly, we think that inflation is going to moderate fairly quickly over the next 12 months. And so while we're at a moment right now that seems pretty scary from a market standpoint, given how hawkish the Fed is, and we believe that the Fed is intentionally being quite hawkish, even though the Fed itself is not sure whether it's going to need to raise rates as quickly and to the point that it's expressing that it, it, it will need to because the Fed needs to have credibility with the markets. But having said that, we do think inflation is going to continue to come down. We're past peak inflation, and we believe that uh, a year from now, inflation will be not yet at the 2% target of the Fed, but a lot closer uh, than we are today, of course, um, and not that far off. Associated with that the change in inflation, we think that a recession next year, a mild recession, is almost a coin toss at this point. So a little bit over 50%, a little bit under, excuse me, 50% chance of recession, and we'll cover that with, with Luke. Um, but if we do have a recession, we expect it to be mild, and uh, we don't expect the incremental impacts on the market to be all that severe, given that um, we're already trading down to the earlier lows, um, about 23 to 25% off of the all-time highs. We don't see the downside from here as being all that extreme, maybe another 5 or 8%. We're going to talk about the election, and then we're going to talk about what's happening in Europe. And indeed, we've recently made a change in our portfolios. Yesterday, our investment committee met, and we've moved some risk out of Europe, out of uh, developed market equities, and into back into the U.S., because we believe that even though from a valuation standpoint, the developed market, non-U.S. developed market area looks interesting, compelling, cheap. We believe that the geopolitical stresses and the economic stresses that are falling out from those geopolitical events within energy are really going to have a very profound impact on the economy in Europe over the coming 12 to 24 months. And we want to uh, be underweight to that area of the world. So we're going to start the conversation again with inflation because inflation is clearly the dominant theme that is impacting markets. And it's a trend in the economy that we haven't seen in 50 years, inflation like this. And I think it's important to start with the idea that the inflation that we're experiencing was not the byproduct of a single factor. 
there were it was really a perfect storm, if you will, in terms of supply side and demand side factors that came together to cause this inflation. And the other side of that coin is that it's not going to be one factor. It's not just the Fed acting on its own in terms of moving the Fed funds rate upwards, which will solve the inflation conundrum that we have right now. There's going to be a variety of factors that are going to work together to help bring down inflation. So let's start with just setting the table around where the inflation came from in the first place. So on the one hand, we had the pandemic caused very significant supply side shocks where there was not enough availability of material um, goods, manufacturing, et cetera. Um, and we're seeing that continue to some degree with China as a result of their COVID lockdowns. So there's been a significant easing of the supply side stresses, but they're not abated completely, mainly because of the COVID situation uh, that continues in China, which is much worse, frankly, than almost anywhere else in the world. Um, and we could have a whole conference call on the, the policy trajectory of uh, China and handling COVID. But suffice it to say that um, their lockdowns, the ruling lockdowns, are going to continue to have an impact on supply chains, at least through the end of their political conferences that they have this fall, where they're going to be getting together and setting a new five-year plan, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a, a big part of the inflation story that continues. Secondly, on the supply chain side, again, we had a lot of inflation as a result of energy. We all, we're all aware, of course, the, the heightened prices of gasoline that have now come back down. We're all aware of the impact that the war in Ukraine has had on global energy supplies and energy prices. What's interesting is, as we stand here today, oil has broken down below $80 a barrel since, since the first week of January. That, that hasn't happened. So we're sort of on the other side of that energy hill, if you will, as it relates to crude oil. Natural gas is a very different story. It's a much more localized regional market. And there we have deep concerns around the situation for, for Europe and their dependency on, on your Russian natural gas and how they're going to close that gap. But when we look at our domestic situation and the overall inflation situation, that drop in crude has had a very positive impact on the overall drop in headline inflation. And then lastly, demand. Um, we saw record amounts of demand, first for goods, and then that wave of appetite for goods continued over into the services arena. And that appetite, that record appetite for consumption was fueled very much by the record amount of fiscal stimulus that we had during the pandemic. And that was important to get us out of the pandemic, but it then led to inflation. And so part of the equation for the drop in inflation is going to be essentially the exhaustion, if you will, of the consumer. Um, the consumer is in good shape, but they're not nearly as well stocked, if you will, in uh, their ability to consume from a resources standpoint as they were 12 months ago. Um, they've burned through a lot of that excess cash. They're going into credit now. Uh, and so we think that the consumer is actually in a good place for where we stand in the economy, where they're going to hold up, but they're not going to continue to consume at the same rate. And that's going to be positive for, for inflation as well. So, Luke, if we think about what's happened most recently on the inflation front, the Fed has said that in order to start to pull back on the, tight, the, the tightening, the increase in the funds rate, what it needs to see is compelling evidence that inflation is moderating. And it's defined for us compelling evidence as generally a series of readings month over month that shows that inflation is dropping. And what happened last week was we had had some readings where inflation was dropping. And then last week, it sort of set us back a couple months because we got a reading that was in the wrong direction. Um, on CPI, both headline and core, uh, due to food 
on the headline side and, and within the core due to um, shelter, healthcare, and some other items. Can you please start by taking us through where are we right now in that decline in inflation and how fast do you think will come down the backside of that inflation help? Yeah, sure, Tony. Our baseline expectation is for inflation to come down in a year-over-year sense uh, from where it is now at 8.3% down to 7.1% by the end of this year. You know, there's less than uh, six months of readings left. And then to come down even more quickly to that 3% uh, on a a 12-month forward-looking basis. And a couple of things I'd like to to say about that, the 7.1% is obviously still an incredibly high number in a year-over-year sense. Mathematically, a lot of that is sort of in the months that are behind us and what it implies and sort of the underlying month-over-month numbers is that we do expect to continue to see slowing inflation in the months going forward. And we do this with each of the components that you're talking about, Tony. And what we are uh, projecting and what we are seeing is some continued high numbers for shelter. Uh, We know that there's a big uh, delay. We know that the housing market is very challenged right now, and rents are starting to slow down, and that is good for inflation, but it'll take a while to play out in the numbers. We actually do keep that number pretty high. Uh, We keep the food inflation pretty high. We know what's happened with some commodities, even though they've come back uh, down. The the food is very challenging. But what we expect to see is this downward movement because of exactly what you said. Uh, I'm going to quote you, Tony, the exhaustion of the consumer. Um, they, I think that really paints it well because what we've seen over the course of this year is a movement from consumers who had a ton of savings and that were ready, willing, and able to pay for price increases, uh, and now we don't have that anymore. And with, with last week's uh, upside surprise with inflation, we still did see a lot of price declines and a lot of the goods where consumers are cutting back. A couple uh, uh, categories did move up in a little bit of a surprise, but we do expect the weight of all of those things to be bringing inflation down, as we described here, Tony. So it's important to understand uh, for our listeners and our viewers that this is a very fast-moving situation, that the overall narrative is going to be very different in 90 days than it is today as it relates to inflation, because it is coming down so quickly in our view. And as we understand that, it's important to appreciate that it's not just the Fed hiking the funds rate that's doing this. You've got the Fed hiking the funds rate. You have the consumer. You also have what we call quantitative tightening, which is to say that the Fed is essentially removing about $95 billion per month starting this month in November of assets from its balance sheet. And what that does effectively is it pushes those assets back into the financial economy uh, and it takes an equal value of cash and brings it back into the Fed. So it lowers the money supply. And then lastly, we have a higher dollar, and the dollar also acts as a effectively a tightening on the economy by making imports um, less expensive. So can you just take a moment, Luke, to talk about how those four factors are working together to lower inflation? Because I think that everyone's familiar with the Fed. We've talked about the consumer, but the quantitative tightening and the dollar are forces that are playing here that are important that are, are less familiar to the audience. Yeah, the quantitative tightening has really taken a backseat in terms of uh, it showing up in the debate with so much focus on Fed rate hikes. And that is, uh, I think, appropriate. But as you said, in the background, we do have the Fed pulling money out of the economy, essentially, as uh, you described. And really what it does, they're not taking dollars away from individuals, but they're taking uh, back a lot of the excess liquidity that they had pumped into the system that would otherwise be there uh, to generate loans and create stronger growth. And this is them taking away that proverbial punchful. And as they pull back on the amount of liquidity in the system, it does have that restraining impact on 
uh, growth and on inflation. That's exactly what they're trying to do. Estimates vary. There's only this is only the second time that they've actually been reducing their balance sheet in their you know more than 100 year history uh, in such a significant way. But this is probably worth another 50 basis points of hiking at the short end of the curve in the sense that it's restraining uh, growth. And then the last impact, the fourth one that you mentioned, Tony, the dollar. This is really important. You know, the Fed, the dollar has been moving up, and we'll talk about it a little bit more uh, with positioning. And that's because the exchange rate reflects strength in the economy and also relative interest rates. And the U.S. economy is stronger than most others, and interest rates are higher. So it, that, that's going to drive the dollar higher, and that definitely pushes down on inflation with so many imported goods that it definitely helps. And it, it plays into the energy and the oil prices that you described as well, Tony. So, look, we've painted a picture that I think is somewhat compelling around these forces acting together to push down or act against the persistent increase in prices in the economy, push down prices. With that, is that why you think that the Fed may not need to move to 4.6% on its terminal rate? And what I'm referring to is when the Fed announced its 75 basis point interest rate hike earlier this week, there was somewhat of a surprise in that the so-called dot plots, the Fed's projection of where it will take interest rates going forward was as high as it was at 4.625%, I think was the number. And we looked at that and we said, gee, we're not sure that the Fed is going to need to go that high. Take us through that thinking, Luke, in light of those forces that are all acting to push down prices. I think you said it well at the beginning, Tony, when you said the Fed might not even think that they need to hike this much because the Fed has really moved over the past several months to more of a risk management mode. Their inflation forecasts are actually pretty similar in the sense that they expect it to be coming down if they have the, this interest rate policy. But that risk management view that they've taken is basically saying, uh, if we are wrong, we need to guard against the risk to the upside. And they're willing to take that risk and push rates higher. Uh, we just think that the, the forces we see that, are, that we described that are pulling down on inflation will have it moving down and that they won't need to end up hiking that much. Because let's remember, the actions that they've already taken, that not just the federal funds rate, but the two-year, the 10-year mortgage rates are already pulling down on inflation. They've hit housing. They're hitting consumers and businesses. Uh, and so we've already started to see that play through, and we think that'll continue. So I'm going to come to you, Megan, more broadly on the markets recently. But I think it's important to talk just for a quick moment to corroborate what Luke is describing about inflation expectations. Because there are a number of different technical ways to look into the market and see what inflation expectations are, whether it's treasury break-evens, whether it's swap rates, et cetera. And the market is essentially telling us that it believes the Fed has this, and inflation expectations have been very stable, which is really important. Can you just tell us a little bit about where inflation expectations are in the market and how you read that as a strategist in positioning portfolios? Inflation expectations are a very critical part of the market. Um, we have been looking at inflation expectations actually coming down pretty nicely since the summer. As you know, we talk about with our team, there is a close correlation with uh, oil markets, and we've seen oil under significant pressure. We can talk more about that, too, and, wh and why that is. Um, but I do think this is really important, and, and it is something that the Fed watches it's also really critical from the perspective of looking at uh, real rates. And, you know, w when we think about real rates, we're looking at not only nominal, but also that expectation of inflation and subtracting uh, that ex expectation of inflation gets you to a real rate. And generally, when you see real rates moving up, as they have been 
that uh, increases the appeal um, of safer assets and and maybe makes uh, riskier assets like equities less attractive. So I do think that's part of the reason why we've been seeing the market under pressure. So Luke, let's just finish with a conversation quickly around the forecast for growth as we go through the next 12 to 24 months. And that's a longhand way of saying, do you expect a recession? Yeah, it's um, I, it's as you said at the beginning. I think we've reached a, the spot where it's uh, close to a coin flip uh, in terms of a fifty percent chance of uh, recession. The more the way that we expressed it um, uh, uh, recently is the more aggressive the Fed gets now, uh, the increasing the likelihood that they'll have to reduce rates later, either because inflation slows so much or because they do push the uh, the economy into recession if the inflation readings don't come in. Uh, as much as they expect. Uh, here, we are showing our uh, 2022 forecast finishing the year at 1.5%. Uh, of course, we still already, we already have two quarters uh, of this year, the beginning of this year, which we're on the weaker side. Uh, the math works out that you've got um, that's still a pretty big um, uh, em- emphasis from last year, impact from, from last year. Uh, but we've reduced our expectation uh, for next year, the growth to 0.8%. That's obviously uh, very much on the weak side. Uh, and mathematically, for a year to go up 0.8, you could still have some negative quarters in there. So our baseline is still that we're going to have growth, but it is very low. Uh, it is based on, and uh, you know, our belief, uh, the, the strongest thing, I think, is the labor market, which we'll show in a second. But we do continue to see uh, CapEx by firms, which will be contributing to the economy. Uh, rebuilding of inventories, so making extra stuff to rebuild inventories. We know what's going on in the auto sector, and when they do see those supply chains improved and get more semiconductors, there's going to be more production there that'll show up in the data. Uh, But I think that the most encouraging thing that we have going on is that companies are still hiring. They still have job openings, still hiring at a really solid clip here, Uh, more than 300,000 jobs in the month of August. You can see the six-month average has been uh, coming down and slowing. Uh, But still, these numbers that are above 300,000, but before COVID, (laughs) a long time ago, it's sort of hard to remember, a really strong jobs report is something like 150 to 250,000 jobs. uh, And we're still well above that. So you still see companies that are getting enough orders that they need to uh, staff up for them. I think it's really encouraging. uh, And the openings are still high. Uh, clearly, this could change if companies, if, if sentiment sours and if things get too uh, negative. Uh, but we think this is the strongest argument for uh, continued growth, even if it is going to be slower, Tony. Thank you, Luke. And I would just add to that analysis that one of the, the, the dynamics that's going to be occurring as we move forward over the next quarter within the economy is that we're going to continue to see increased pressure on wages. So as nominal wages grow, go up, continue to elevate, and as inflation comes down, we will reach an inflection point where real wages turn positive. So right now what's happening in the economy is that even though people are getting increases, inflation is so strong that their actual spending power is dropping. That's going to change sometime, in our opinion, in the next 90 days, where inflation will come down below the level of wage growth and real wages will start to grow again. And that will be positive for consumers and help act as a buffer against a recession. I should have mentioned this as we talk about the, the possibility of recession. That wages question, like how strong are they? If they're just a little bit too strong, that's going to keep the Fed on this aggressive rate hike cycle. And that is the real risk. And I'm really glad that you pointed it out because the picture you painted, which, of course, is is a baseline expectation, it would be supportive. If that labor market stays too tight and if wages are too high, so to speak, 
then the Fed is even dismissive of low inflation numbers. They say, well, we think this is still a problem, and they get aggressive. And so that's why it's so challenging with the uh, the probability of recession right now uh, is that labor market question. Yeah, and of course, you know, we believe that the dynamics of the labor market really lie at the foundation of the economy, both in the short and the long term. And our capital market forecast for next year is going to very much focus on the changed relationship that we think has been one of the key byproducts between work and life from from the pandemic. And we'll talk about that a lot in some coming research. So getting back to today, Megan, you've heard Luke's discussion around the economy. And as you know, the recession is almost a coin flip right now. We've never had a situation where we've had an economic recession and not had an earnings recession in U.S. companies. We're now down around 23% or so from the all-time highs on the S&P. We're, we're pretty close to the June lows. We're actually below the June lows uh, on the Dow now um, in the intraday trading. So we're pretty much retesting those lows. So the question, of course, Megan, is can you take us through what's been going on in the markets? And do you see us possibly breaking through those lows? We're pretty close right now. Uh, and how much further might we go? with this economic forecast that Luke has laid out for us of either no recession or, if anything, a mild recession? Yeah, Tony, great question. It's been a wild ride so far this year. And I think a real pivotal moment was between June and August of this year when we had some signs of peaking inflation. And really what was underpinning that was a narrative that had taken hold in, in the market that the Fed was going to hike to a certain level, you know, not that hawkish, and then start to pivot pretty soon after um, and, and cut rates. And that was really dashed at Powell's Jackson Hole speech on August 19th, um, actually the last day of my summer vacation and a really fun way to go out um, because we had the market just kind of wake up to the idea that, oh, no, the Fed is really serious. They're going to raise rates. They're going to keep them there. Um, and that, of course, sent interest rates higher. The 10-year Treasury yield uh, moving from a summer low of 2.6% to 3.7% um, and a massive re-rating from the market in terms of what they expected from that peak Fed funds rate. And I, I you know, talking a lot about equity market volatility, and that is critical. Um, but what I, you know, what I think is continues to be one of the most important themes for this year has been the challenges in the bond market. And for a diversified investor, this has been very painful so far year to date. Core municipal bonds, one of the safest asset classes, are down 10%. So anybody looking at their diversified portfolio and wondering why it seems to be so, uh, you know, down so much, it's that combination of weakness on both the stock and the bond side. Um, you know, I think as we think about the recession risks, one of the things that, that strategists like to, you know, like me, like to look at uh, is the yield curve. And so what we've been monitoring are two measures of the yield curve. And why this matters is, you know, we tend to look at the short end of the curve compared to the long end of the curve. The short end of the curve, so call it the two-year Treasury yield or the three-month Treasury yield, being more anchored to the prospects for monetary policy. And the long end of the curve essentially being a signal of can the economy handle that policy? So when we look at the short end moving higher than the long end, that has historically been um, a very negative signal for the economy. The 10-year minus three months, importantly, is not yet inverted. It's actually spiked back up in recent days. 
but it was as low as 14 basis points this month. But it's something that we are watching very carefully. Right, and as and the then, Fed continues to raise rates, we almost it's almost a certainty that it will invert uh, before the end of the year, probably next month, right? If the Fed were to hike even close to what they've telegraphed at their latest meeting, I would expect this to invert, yeah. So, okay, Megan, given that the yield curve is never, it, it's predicted some recessions that didn't happen, but it's never failed to predict a recession that did happen. So given that, the fact that it is inverted, if you look at the two tens or the three month to 10 year, it's about to invert. Let's assume for a moment that we are going to have a mild recession next year. Shouldn't we therefore be selling risk out of our portfolios today? What's your take on that question? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, and the answer is no, um, in part because of what we've already experienced. So as you as you mentioned, Tony, if we do have a recession, we do think that there are you know all the signs are pointing to it being a fairly mild recession. And if that were the case, the average drawdown has been about twenty three percent, which is right where we were as of June, probably where we're going to end up today. So I would say the market's already pricing in a mild recession, and that might seem weird because it seems like it's so far in advance, and we've we've had you know still signs of strength in the economy, but the market does tend to look ahead. We might not see a real strong market rally until we get a sign that the Fed is stopping or even starting to cut rates. Um, But that said, I don't think we need to go down too much further. So the important point being to stay invested um, and to look ahead 12 months. And, you know, we do think the markets can be higher. Thanks, Megan. So to summarize, we're certainly in the ballpark already in terms of the pain that we would expect to feel if we have a recession next year. Uh, and so that's really good to understand. I want to come back to you, talk about Europe in a moment, Megan. But before we do that, I want to just talk a bit about the midterm elections here in the U.S. So there were a few different outcomes that could occur relative to the division of power in the U.S. Congress between the House, the Senate. Um, you could have a Republican sweep, a Democratic sweep, or, or of course, a, a split within the two chambers. And Anything other than a Democratic sweep would essentially result in a divided government since the Democrats control the White House. The Republicans need to take either the House or effective control over the Senate in order to be in a position to create the outcome of gridlock um, for the next couple of years. And probably no surprise to folks, the markets prefer the gridlock than they do power concentrated in one, one party. And certainly in this particular case, given the propensity um, on the blue side of the aisle, for potential uh, tax and spending policy, which creates a lot of uncertainty in the short term and potentially in the long term, inflation or deficit spending, um, the market would be biased very strongly right now towards having a gridlock outcome in the forthcoming congressional elections. Now, I just want to say we're non-political here at Wilmington Trust. We're not trying to express any view one way or the other. We're just simply trying to understand factually how the outcome of the election is likely to impact markets. And so when we look at things today, what we see is that the Democrats have probably a 60 percent chance, so a little bit less than two out of three chance of increasing their technical control of the Senate today. And the Republicans um, have been dropping in their likely victory in the House of Representatives. So if we go back to the abortion case, the Dobbs case that came out back in June, that was really the touchstone that changed the trajectory of the political environment here in the country, uh, where a lot of folks um, on the blue side of the aisle 
really became energized around personal rights, et cetera. Um, and that seems to have had a big impact on the odds for the outcome within these congressional elections. So the Republicans have been favored by 90% to 10% to take over the House. Now they're only, that's down to around 68 or 69% if you look at 538 or, or other pollsters that follow closely the congressional elections. So we're not sure what's going to happen, but 68 or 70% in the House is still suggestive of a split or a gridlock government. So let me just cover what would happen if we have a gridlock government quickly. There are a few things that are bipartisan, believe it or not, that we think we'd make progress on. One is defense. Um, there seems to be bipartisan support um, for more spending on defense, increase as a percentage of our overall budget, and specifically to have new legislation around cybersecurity in general and specifically around defense. So that's an area that we would expect to see movement of legislation. Secondly, a supply chain. We've already seen this year, in fact, a pretty significant act that directly targets U.S. supply chain within semiconductors. That's an area that we expect supply chain generally, not semiconductors per se, but supply chain resiliency, more onshoring of manufacturing capacity, et cetera. That's an area that we would expect in a gridlock situation to find some common uh, interest among the parties, among the two parties. Thirdly is antitrust legislation. We think that there continues to be bipartisan support for legislation that targets the big tech companies, which have become very dominant forces in the economy and their monopolies. Uh, so that's something that we would expect. And then lastly is regulation of cryptocurrencies. So we haven't talked much about crypto and the financial economy. It continues to play um, a pretty significant role. Um, it's been interesting to watch cryptos. They seem to be almost a proxy for, for equity risk or, or risk in, um, in markets. And that's so interesting because um, it seemed that a lot of the assets that went into crypto were at the expense of the traditional flight to safety trade, which was gold. But crypto is hardly um, trading as a flight to safety asset. It's trading as a much more volatile asset that's much more highly correlated to risk. So um, regardless of that, we think that if the uh, Congress comes out in a gridlock situation, that would be an area of interest for Congress to go after. Now, on the other hand, if the Democrats are able to sweep the House and the Senate, and of course, with President Biden in the White House, we would expect to see a pretty aggressive approach to fiscal spending and, and taxation. And we don't know whether or not this would be deficit spending or whether or not it would be fully funded. And we don't know whether or not, therefore, it might be inflationary in and of itself. Hard to imagine they would enact something that was too inflationary too quickly, given the environment we're in. Um, but you never know. But just the prospect of higher taxes and higher spending can really throw havoc into a market. So suffice it to say that the markets would probably not like a democratic sweep, but it would all depend ultimately on the details of their legislation to see whether or not it would in fact be inflationary or um, at least deficit spending. So that is the outlook for the election. So Megan, let's just talk for a moment about Europe. We have a lot of geopolitical stress in Europe, obviously, with the situation in Ukraine. Uh, that's led to very specific economic stresses around energy for companies in Europe that will risk impacting um, life in Europe, if you will, um, as it relates to um, home heating. Um, so a pretty drastic situation we've seen. Um, we've heard anecdotally about a lot of companies actually looking already to shift manufacturing out of Europe, given the high cost of energy, can't actually make a profit. Can you give us an update on that situation and how it impacts portfolios? Because we've made a recent change that I alluded to at the outset of the conversation. Um, and maybe you could give us a little bit more detail on why we made that recent change. Thank you. 
Yeah. So just a quick update on the energy situation. As you probably now all familiar with the with the stats, the EU imported about a quarter of its energy from Russia in uh, 2020. Russia gas flows to Europe have been reduced by 80 percent on a year-over-year basis after the halt of Nord Stream 1. Um, and Russia announced that they're cutting gas pipeline exports by 40% in 2023 through 2025. Importantly, Russia can afford to do this. So uh, with the 220% uh, year-to-date increase in, in natural gas prices, Gazprom is actually making more revenue in 2022 so far this year than they did in all of 2021. So this reduction is not hurting Russia, importantly. Um, Now, Europe has been successful in getting their storage levels up to about 80 or 90 percent. And this has come with significant demand destruction. Uh, We are, you know, watching carefully. It'll a lot of it will come down this winter to weather and how cold the winter is. Uh, If it is a colder than normal winter, we could see storage depleted again with more trouble for um, the ability to restock next year. That would result in, and we still could see this year, um, managed blackouts, power rationing. Um, This could be particularly painful, as you pointed out, Tony, for the industrial sector um, with demand cuts of, you know, 10 to 15 percent. So this does materially increase the risk of recession in uh, Europe, and, and actually they're probably uh, already there and likely to stay there in terms of, of recession or the near future. So we've reduced our equity allocation to international developed equities, which includes Europe, but also UK, Japan, and other developed economies. And we've rotated that into U.S. large cap equities. So we're keeping our overall equity allocation at neutral, not risking up the portfolio, um, but we're picking our spots and we're looking for a better opportunity for recovery and a quicker recovery and a more sustained recovery in the U.S. than we're likely to see um, in international developed economies. So indeed to that point, thank you, Megan. Luke, how deep could this recession be in Europe? We've talked about a mild recession here in the U.S. Same thing for Europe, but just earlier or could it be a lot worse? Yeah, I think it's deeper because the ripple impacts of those those cutbacks could be much deeper. The sustained nature of the the energy price impacts that Megan was just talking about and no quick fix uh, we know are devastating to consumers. And there are you know new policies that are being put forth to support the economy to limit the energy price uh, that uh, households are paying. But then those just spill over into the government's budgets, uh, weaken their currencies even further. So there's no easy way out. Thank you, Luke. And I just wanted to to point out for our our listeners that when we look at the year-to-date performance of European developed market equities versus U.S. large cap equities, what we see is as of as of yesterday when we made this trade, the developed market area was only down around two percent year-to-date more than the U.S. And so we felt that the markets were not fully pricing in the significant incremental risk of deeper recession in Europe, given the very present situation in Ukraine and the knock-on effects in energy, so on and so forth, uh, that we've just talked about. And that's why we took our positioning down in international development and added it to the U.S. equities. So with that, I want to thank you for joining. Uh, Thank you so much to Luke and Megan for your great comments today. 
podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the sale of any financial product or service or recommendation or determination that any investment strategy is suitable for a specific investor. Investors should seek financial advice regarding the suitability of any investment strategy based on the investor's objectives, financial situation, and particular needs. The information on Wilmington Trust's capital considerations with Tony Roth has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. The opinions, estimates, and projections constitute the judgment of Wilmington Trust as of the date of this podcast and are subject to change without notice. Wilmington Trust is not authorized to and does not provide legal or tax advice. Our advice and recommendations provided to you is illustrative only and subject to the opinions and advice of your own attorney, tax advisor, or other professional advisor. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against a loss. There is no assurance that any investment strategy will be successful. Past performance cannot guarantee future results. Investing involves a risk and you may incur a profit or a loss. Any reference to company names mentioned in the podcast should not be constructed as investment advice or investment recommendations of those companies. Facts and views presented in this report have not been reviewed by and may not reflect information known to professionals in other business areas of Wilmington Trust or M&T Bank and may provide to seek to provide financial services to entities referred to in this report. M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust have established information barriers between their various business groups. As a result, M&T Bank and Wilmington Trust do not disclose certain client relationships or compensation received from such entities in their reports. Investment products are not insured by the FDIC or any other governmental agency, are not deposits of or other obligations of or guaranteed by Wilmington Trust, M&T Bank, or any other bank or entity, and are subject to risk, including a possible loss of the principal amount invested. Wilmington Trust is a registered service mark used in connection with various fiduciary and non-fiduciary services offered by certain subsidiaries of M&T Bank Corporation, including, but not limited to, Manufacturers and Traders Trust Company, M&T Bank, Wilmington Trust Company, WTC, operating in Delaware only, Wilmington Trust NA, WTNA, Wilmington Trust Investment Advisors, Inc., WTIA, Wilmington Funds Management Corporation, WFMC, and Wilmington Trust Investment Management, LLC, WTIM. Such services include trustee, custodial agency, investment management, and other services. International corporate and institutional services are offered through M&T Bank Corporation's international subsidiaries. Loans, credit cards, retail, and business deposits, and other business and personal banking services and products are offered by M&T Bank, member FDIC. 2021 M&T Bank Corporation and its subsidiaries, all rights reserved. Private market investments are only available to investors that meet the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's definitions of qualified purchaser and accredited investor. 